What role did United States Army Intelligence Services play in defeating the Nazis in World War II? How did Army Intelligence begin monitoring the Soviet Union as the Cold War began? And what's the real story of Cold War spies versus pop culture movies and novels? For answers to these questions and more insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Bogart about his new book, Covert Legions, which tells the story of how United States Army Intelligence Services guided and executed U.S. policy in Europe from 1944 to 1949. Welcome, Thomas, and thanks for joining me here today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You know, it took me about seven years to write this book. Oh, wow. uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and you're kind of living like a hermit. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's great to be finally able to talk about it and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, tell uh, your listeners a little bit about what I found and why I think uh, this is an important and, uh, quite frankly, also fascinating subject. Absolutely fascinating. We're going to get into some of that. And But before we do, I just want to let people know who you are and what your background is. So Dr. Thomas Bogart is a senior historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History. Before joining the center, he served as the historian at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and as the Fritz Tyson Fellow at Georgetown University. He is the author of numerous articles and books on intelligence in the 20th century, and he lectures frequently on this subject. Dr. Bogart received his Ph.D. in modern European history from the University of Oxford. That's the one in England, isn't it? Okay. So, you know, I want to start our discussion. Um, I'm anxious to get into the material because I I think it's really fascinating. But what am I missing about your background? Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Uh, So I think you've uh, you've you've touched on uh, um, uh, sort of the major milestones in my in my career. Uh, As you can hear from my accent, I'm German originally. I've lived here for a long time, though. And uh, I'm a senior historian at the uh, Center of Military History. I have had a very long interest in in espionage. Uh, don't ask me why. Uh, probably just coming f- from from reading uh, spy novels. Uh, um, uh, and I grew up um, uh, late Cold War, so the Cold War was kind of still on people's mind. I did my dissertation um, in England on a topic of espionage in World War One. Later, later wrote a book about the Zimmerman telegram and the uh, intelligence uh, involved there. And then, as you mentioned, I joined the International Spy Museum here in Washington, D.C., and that was really a pivotal moment because when I did join that museum, uh, that was in 2002, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Cold War was still very much on people's mind. And I had the great privilege of uh, working at that museum uh, with a number of board members and director who had served for various intelligence services during the Cold War. Oh, that's fascinating. CIA, uh, FBI, we had a retired KGB uh, general uh, on board. And uh, talking to these people um, and, you know, looking at these artifacts there, uh, it just really spoke 
spoke to me mm-hmm. and uh, it uh, it uh, uh, became a, a passion of mine. Um, and so uh, when I left the spy museum and joined the center, you know, I kind of took this interest of Cold War uh, 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 with me. And uh, yeah, and I think this is how uh, eventually we, we ended up uh, here at this uh, desk talking about my, my book. Right. And it, it, it's a thrilling book. Uh, Covert Legions is the, is the title. The U.S. Army Intelligence in Germany, 1944 to 1949. So first of all, Covert Legions. I think it's a great title. Uh, just explain that to, to folks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, we, we thought a lot about this title. And uh, uh, really, it's a, it's a fancy way of saying military intelligence, right? I mean, legions, that's, uh, um, that is a, uh, an allusion to the, to the Roman legions, military units of the Roman Empire. Uh, and uh, um, uh, the army obviously is a military organization, and we think of the military as uh, as doing things very overtly. Uh, you know that's their job, but it's often forgotten. There's a covert part to it. Uh, in many ways, intelligence, uh, all intelligence derives from uh, fighting wars, uh, learning about the enemy, and so this is what this title. Um, um, you know, this is how this t- title came um, to be. Uh, subtitle: um, uh, It covers five years. Um, uh, from the moment that American troops entered Germany in September 1944, uh, the military occupation began to the end of the military occupation in September 1949. So this is how the title uh, tries to capture the, um, the content of the book. Right, and intelligence, I mean, that is just an essential part of warfare. I mean, even going back to Sun Tzu, you know, he, he, uh, he, he felt that spying and intelligence was one of the main principles. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you can um, you can go back uh, as far in history as you like. If you look at the, um, uh, you mentioned Sun Tzu, obviously, uh, you know, great Chinese uh, author on warfare and intelligence. Uh, but you find the same Western literature. I mean, if you go back, uh, you know, the, the oldest um, uh, products of Western literature, the, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, mm-hmm. uh, or the Iliad, you will find references to spies. Right. Uh, think about the Trojan horse. It's, yes, it's, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of covert action, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so uh, this has always been around. You know, sometimes it's uh, uh, jocularly referred to as the second oldest profession, uh, <laughs> and it is uh, still with us today. You're absolutely right. It's an essential part of, um, of, uh, uh, of a military. Uh, goes beyond that, but, but those are the origins. It's, it's always been with, with mankind. Right, and then um, so intelligence ha- has been around, you, you know, from the founding of the U.S. Army and throughout World War II. But you're focusing on when the army actually gets into Germany. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the uh, the beginning of army intelligence with Germany. Describe what was happening. Right. So um, obviously, this is a a uh, a broad field, and I try to capture that in the book. Um, so when when World War II starts, um, there was an army intelligence organization, but it had to be revamped, it had to be reorganized, it expanded uh, massively. Um, important to keep in mind that, especially in the European theater, the army was really virtually the only American organization with an intelligence organization. Uh, so anything that uh, was done in terms of intelligence um, operations in the European theater was conducted um, by the U.S. Army. Um, when the Americans came to Germany in September uh, 1944, um, they immediately needed to retool from simply, um, um, you know, assessing the order of battle of the Wehrmacht of the German army to to anything that was required in the occupation, and that was 
denazification, for instance, you know, finding out the bad guys uh, and and removing them, um, um, uh, exploiting, um, you know, German technology. Uh, you know, the Germans were very advanced, and uh, you know, we wanted to capture some of that stuff for ourselves. Um, placing capable administrators and reliable people in key positions, uh, you know, that type of thing. Um, finding out what the other allies, you know, this of course was an alliance war against mm -hmm. Germany, uh, finding out what, what, what they were up to in yeah. Germany. Mm -hmm. All these things are, are, um, are classic, classic intelligence right. uh, missions and really simply by the fact that there was no other organization to do it, the army took all of this on, yeah. which is why the subtitle U.S. Army Intelligence in Germany may be a little misleading. Um, uh, it could also be called U.S. Intelligence mm -hmm. because um, the army was virtually the only organization that, uh, uh, you know, had to deal with, uh, with, with uh, this, these multifarious tasks. So I, I know there was the OSS, right, the Office of Strategic Services. So what was the difference in, in their role compared to Army Intelligence? Yes, very good question. Uh, so there was the OSS. The OSS was a service that um, did not report to the Army. It reported to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, uh, it was founded uh, really sort of as a... Um, on the one hand, as a coordinating body, it was supposed to coordinate intelligence activities between uh, the Army, uh, the Navy, um, and, you know, the State Department. They had some intelligence functions. Um, but it was also modeled after um, the Special Operations Exe Executive in, in Britain, which was kind of a covert action um, 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 outfit. Um, you know, they were supposed to blow up bridges and this and that. Okay. Uh, the main function of the OSS was... Um, uh, when we did invade Europe, France, the OSS was supposed to work with um, local resistance groups against oh. the Germans. Uh, the issue here was that, uh, as you know, the uh, once Normandy succeeded, uh, the German resist resistance in France folded. The Germans were essentially withdrawn back to Germany. So there was very little for the OSS to do. And then once we reached the German border, uh, the OSS didn't really have assets there and, and it really fell to the army um, um, to, to, to get the job done, uh, if you like. Um, and uh, um, so the OSS is an important organization, but I would say its importance is really in um, laying the groundwork and providing continuity for what then becomes the CIA. All right, great. Yeah, so, um, so now where D-Day has happened, the Army and the Allies are on the continent. Um, so what... What tools, what units, you know, what type of people were, what was Army Intelligence using to do their work? Yeah. So, again, the title uh, Army Intelligence um, obscures the fact that we're actually talking about uh, a number of organizations. Uh, uh, you know, every unit, um, um, well, almost down to the platoon level, had some, some sort of uh, intelligence um, personnel attached to it. And then uh, the higher you go, uh, uh, you know, core, division, uh, army, army group, these units become bigger and bigger and more specialized. Uh, they did everything that you would expect a modern intelligence service to do. They did signals intelligence, so interception of radio signals. Uh, they um, had spies, um, uh, especially um, once they entered uh, uh, Germany, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the recruitment of, of locals that, that could perhaps tell, you know, here's someone who really should be removed from office or here's someone who, you know, yeah. was an anti-Nazi and you should work with this, uh, with this person because he has, he has good credentials. 
um, that type of thing. Um, the most important function during the war, and you find that in the memoirs of generals who served, was actually the interrogation of prisoners of war. Uh, General Seibert, uh, who was the um, um, G2 of um, of 12th Army Group and then became the, the main in Army Intelligence Chief in, in uh, Germany after the war, he said that uh, 70% of the intelligence that uh, commanders needed uh, came from prisoner of war interrogations. Uh, wow. wow. Yes, uh, because this was, there was a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, um, it was timely. Uh, you know, you captured someone, he could tell you, um, you know, what had happened in the, within the German armed forces yesterday or even today. And, uh, and the army was very, very good at processing um, this, this, uh, this multitude of, of, of information in a very quick manner. Actionable information. Exactly, yeah. actionable yeah. intelligence, correct. But how, I mean, how willing were the Germans to talk, you know, um, so that the intelligence could be actionable? Um, I mean, who was who doing the interviewing? How are they getting this information out of that? Uh, right. I mean, of course, it differs. You know, if you get uh, um, um, an SS general officer, you know, he right. might be a little less willing to talk mm -hmm. than, uh, you know, a private 17 years who just been drafted. The mm -hmm. point here is, A, that you have a lot. You know, you de don't depend on one person or this. And even if one person gives you a piece of information that seems, um, you know, not interesting in itself, if you put it together with, 1,000 other pieces of information, right. you know, you're kind of putting together a puzzle. That's one thing. And another thing is, and I know we'll talk about this more later, is that the army made very good use of sort of the human reservoir of, uh, of American society. Uh, they targeted um, for their prison of war interrogators uh, German immigrants. Uh, uh, you had a lot of um, uh, Germans, many Jews, who um, fled Nazi Germany in the 1930s, came to the United States, uh, were then trained uh, at uh, Camp Ritchie in Maryland. This was the main uh, intelligence training center as POW interrogators. Then they came back to Germany. Of course, they spoke to the Germans in their own language. They yeah. could make them feel comfortable. Right. Uh, and, that, and that cultural aspect. So they, you know, they knew what they were talking exactly, about. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They would, you know, might just sit down and say, hey, you know, let's talk about the Rhineland or let's talk about mm -hmm. Munich or wherever. You know, they got, uh, right. one of the best known of these people, of course, is Henry Kissinger. Uh, wow. Henry Kissinger, wow. yes. I mean, he uh, he and his family fled from Bavaria, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the 1930s because of his Jewish background. He then became uh, a prisoner of war interrogator. Uh, he sp mm. spoke German like a native because yeah. he was a native. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he, he put these German prisoners of war at ease. They were just happy to talk. Mm -hmm. uh, they mm -hmm. were just happy wow. to talk. And uh, uh, this is uh, partly of why the POW interrogations um, were so absolutely valuable for the army. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah, so so the Ritchie boys, um, so so talk a little bit about um, the types of information that they got and how did it? You know, we were talking about it being actionable history. What is um, what are some examples of uh, of how they were able to use that information to their advantage? Right. Um, so. Um uh, let me let me just preface it by saying, you know, when we look at intelligence, of course, we, we always want to see, you know, that flashy piece of intelligence that mm -hmm. um, that uh, uh, gave us that one piece of information that changed the course <laughs> of history, right? Uh, and I hate I hate to tell you, but that rarely happens. Right. Um, right. Oh, uh, intelligence. Think of it like diplomacy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, it provides a steady stream of information that hopefully uh, will be integrated into decision making. 
and uh, uh, you know then will play their role. It's it's often hard to say okay here's a piece that um, um, uh, you know uh, changed the course of history. But for instance, uh, we can't say now with certainty that we had a very good idea of the order of battle uh, of the Wehrmacht. And, and can you and, just and can explain, you just that, explain for that for some of our Yes, absolutely. So basically it means the, the strength and the disposition, the organization of the, uh, of, of the German army. Uh, we kind of knew what, what type of units they had. We knew how they moved their units. Uh, we knew a good deal about the morale uh, of the units, of the logistics, of their um, um, you know, disposition. Um, although I should also caution that that's not the be-all and end-all. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you think, for instance, about the Battle of the Bulge, this was the one major battle that the Americans faced when they invaded Germany in this winter of 1944 and 1945. It is often attacked as an intelligence failure because we didn't predict that attack. Yeah. Um, and I talk about that in my book. Um, so my conclusion is that we actually had a very good idea of the type of forces the Germans had. Um, we also knew they were up to something because they were moving stuff. We did not anticipate the attack because that would have us to requ required us to look inside the, the head of Adolf Hitler, oh, yeah. and oh, we yeah. couldn't do that. It's also interesting to see that the German generals themselves advised against uh, an attack because mm -hmm. it doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. You know, we have so few resources. Let's not waste them on that. That was our conclusion too. Mm -hmm. Now, then mm -hmm. you have someone mm -hmm. who is somewhat irrational and makes a decision anyway. Same with Pearl Harbor. You yeah. know, we, yeah, right. we, we right. kind of knew something was up, mm -hmm. but an attack on Pearl Harbor just didn't make sense from our point of view. That is the hardest part of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, mm -hmm. we did have a pretty good idea of German strength, German's disposition. Uh, we were able, for instance, to, to assess that um, uh, the German guerrilla movements, the so-called werewolf, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. once we looked a little bit more closely at it, was really non-existent, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, did not, would not pose much of a threat and, uh, and, and those types of things. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say look at intelligence at wartime or in peacetime as an important stream of information that needs to be integrated well, mm -hmm. and then it can play a valuable role in decision-making. Right. And, and your book really highlights, you know, how that happened. And, and I think there's a lot of lessons there. For I hope so. Today. <laughs> oh, no, uh, definitely. And then you talk about counterintelligence in, in, uh, throughout the book as well. Just uh, talk a little bit about that. How, did this, how does that apply to all this? Um, so intelligence, um, you know, comprises the um, discipline of counterintelligence. You know, we, of course, want to learn what our opponent is doing and the opponent wants to learn what we're doing. And this is where counterintelligence comes in. Um, uh, the idea here is to deny him that um, um, that opportunity, be it by identifying, arresting their spies, be it through um, communication security. That's a big problem, especially in wartime. You know, uh, commanders and forces on the ground need to get need to relay information fast. If it's sent over the air, uh, as opposed to wired information, it can be plucked uh, from the ether. Uh, by the enemy, and if it's not uh, encrypted, you know, they can read it in real time. Incidentally, this is something apparently that's happening in Ukraine right now. Uh, um, the, um, the Russian forces, from what you read in the press, are, are not practicing very good communication security. Therefore, the Ukrainians often know what, what, mm -hmm. what, uh, what the Russians are up to. And Another reason why this book is so important, these lessons, no, seriously, these lessons learned, uh, you've got to keep applying them and, and 
Unfortunately for the Russians. Lessons <laughs> learned, <laughs> lessons learned or not learned. Uh, yeah. That is the question. Um, right. You know, of course, that is frustration of the historian. Uh, we, we would like that to be the case, um, uh, you know, that the lessons are, are learned. And, of course, that's also part of the mission of the Center of Military History. And you write this history, of course, they're interesting. But the, the key point here is, um, is there something to be learned uh, um, um, in the future? In, in the case of covert legions um, and the Ukraine war, of course, one of the things that stands out is uh, the cooperation between army intelligence and Ukrainian refugees in early Cold War Germany. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, you had a lot of Ukrainians fleeing from uh, from Eastern Europe uh, because either they had worked with the Germans or they were afraid of the Soviets uh, coming to um, to Germany, mostly Bavaria. Uh, and uh, here, the army and intelligence services worked closely with these people uh, because clearly there was a commonality of interest there, right? right, um, right. Um, and so this is something that. Uh, it, in some way, uh, you know, you, all of a sudden, uh, uh, that seems uh, very timely. Yeah. So intelligence clearly plays a huge role in combat operations. Uh, I've talked about that. Now the end of World War II comes <clears throat> in Europe, and now we've got the occupation. Uh, we've got, I guess, growing threats, you could say, from the Soviet Union. Um, so talk to me about how army intelligence, what – what was their new role? Yeah. Um, think about it this way. Uh, think about Europe in 1945. Picture a map of Europe in 1945. You know, the mm-hmm. Third Reich is dying. You have the Grand Alliance between the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and the United States. And then fast forward four years, 1949. Mm-hmm. And think about the world then. <laughs> and you'll see something, you know, I think is unique in European and world history, a such a dramatic change. You know, Europe is then divided. You have an Iron Curtain. Germany is separated into two states. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. and the USSR are facing each other off, sort of on the brink of, of a third world war. Um, much of this change happens or is triggered in Germany because here the two superpowers are facing each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so for American officials in Germany, and the army, again, was the, was the supreme political authority of the United States in Germany. It was a military governor, General Clay has to deal with this enormous change and they have to deal with it in a country that is virtually destroyed, where you have millions of people moving around, uh, where the um, the goals of the allies are shifting, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the future is extremely hazy and unclear, and yet you have thousands of American troops there. It's vital to American interests. So the one thing that Clay, uh, the, uh, the governor, and, and the United States needs is information. What is actually happening on the ground? What's happening with these millions of Nazis that have disappeared? Are these people going right, to be loyal? Right. Do we need to prosecute them? Are they going to come back? Um, uh, what are the Soviets up to? What, what are the Soviets' goals in Germany? Um, uh, you know, then more basic problems, hunger, for refugees. Mm-hmm. So essentially, um, this is really about simply trying to get the information that American authorities in Germany and the United States need to devise a sensible policy. And that is a huge task indeed. And really, it really involves um, um, most aspects of life um, in Germany and Central Europe uh, in the late 1940s. So this information that they're collecting, um, as you alluded to, it it really helps to to guide the decision-making in Washington. Which is what intelligence is supposed guide to guide and implement. Uh, it's kind of a both. It's both way. You know, let's just pick it an obvious example. Uh, 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 example, and this is something that um, 
the book deals with extensively is a changing relationship between uh, the United States and the USSR. Mm-hmm. 1945, we are allies. You know, people often forget that. We were allies. The Soviet Union bled heavily uh, in defeating the Nazis. And in 1945, I don't think anybody really foresaw this radical break that would occur. You know, the idea was that Germany would be occupied jointly, it would be governed jointly, and we would together find a solution to this to this German problem. You know, right, this was already right. the second time that Germany had, um, um, you know, sort of involved the war, uh, the world in a in a world war. And uh, then that changes over time, and we can discuss why. I think essentially you could say that the um, goals of these two countries were, were really incompatible. But mm-hmm. but to kind of find that out, you know, what are the Soviets actually up to? What are they doing in East Germany? So for instance, they were they were very quickly building structures in East Germany, secret police units, uh, concentration camps, uh, a, a totalitarian political system that were totally incompatible with what we had in mind. Um, how does this exactly look like and what does that mean for us? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing. And then, of course, once the Americans devised policies to be implemented in Germany, you needed agents on the ground uh, to implement those. Once again, intelligence comes into play because they're often the only ones who have the language experience, the cultural experience, mm-hmm. uh, the authority. Uh, you know, you didn't want to involve combat troops in that. The military government was essentially administrators. Um, and also, by the end of the occupation, 1949, there were twice as many army intelligence personnel than military government personnel. Uh, oh, wow. So that kind of tells you, again, how absolutely critical uh, this, this, this large and, 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 and very diverse army intelligence organization in Germany is for uh, the implementation of American policy in, in post-war Europe. So who were these army intelligence agents that were on the ground? Um, <clears throat> were some of them the Ritchie boys? Were they just uh, um, other American um, military? So it's a very diverse group. You know, the leadership, they're professional soldiers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the man who ran the show until, I believe, 46, early 47, is General uh, Edwin Seibert. He's a brigadier general, uh, a very competent uh, man who really set up this system. He's a top... Uh, American intelligence officer in Europe. And and he sets up the system that then stays in place for the next years. And uh, many of his subordinate leaders are the same, you know, the professional soldiers that not necessarily, they do not necessarily know German or maybe not even have a, a profound background in intelligence, but they didn't have to be, they were, had to be good leaders and good administrators. And they were that. Then below that, you have a very diverse group. You do have a number of um, Ritchie boys, you know, these these German emigres who stay on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately for the Americans, many of these get demobilized. Someone like Henry Kissinger, you know, he oh, was not oh, a professional wow. soldier. He did his time. Uh, and then in 1946, he, uh, he came back to the United States and the rest is history. We know what uh, he pursued a somewhat right. different right. career. And uh, um, so there were many uh, like that, unfortunately. So the army lost some, some real expertise. Uh, they try to. Um, they certainly try to get people uh, through the draft to Germany who had somewhat of a German background, who maybe spoke the language. Uh, it does become a little bit of an issue because you know these young draftees, someone from the Midwest or wherever, uh, may not may not be as attuned uh, to you know operating in, in such an environment. Uh, but but the army certainly tried through language training and uh, also training in Germany. Uh, to give these people some sort of, um, you know, background uh, from the late 1940s. They were also trained in Russian. Uh, but, yeah, it's a very it's a very diverse mix of 
professional soldiers, draftees, and civilian contractors. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the tactics, techniques, procedures that they were using. Because when you say agents, you know, um, and and again, you know, I alluded to earlier about pop culture spies, you know, um, uh, we think of James Bond or people like that. But what was really happening? What were these agents actually doing? So first terminology, when I say agents, um, you know, I'm referring specifically to um, uh, members of the counterintelligence corps. This was the uh, the largest organization of the US Army uh, intelligence organization, as the name indicates. Originally, it was a counterintelligence organization, but once uh, you know the Americans were in Germany, it quickly also became an espionage organization simply because there was no one else uh, to do the job. So the job of these people and, and the um, uh, counterintelligence uh, CIC personnel in the field had the title special agent. Uh, this is this is what they call themselves, um, and they did this through recruiting sources. Uh, so they would, uh, let's say, let's say they were interested in what was going on at a local communist party meeting, uh, West German communist party meeting. Uh, they would um, recruit someone, uh, ideally a member of the party, who would attend this, and then would later report uh, back to to the handling uh, a special agent. Uh, so that was an important part of, uh, of of what they were doing. But then you had other organizations. Uh, uh, and a, a big one was the censorship division. Uh, so uh, remember, this was the military occupation. So yeah. we had yeah. every right, right. to You're do right. pretty much whatever we wanted. And we mm-hmm. used that um, with abandon. Uh, so mm-hmm. any German phone call, any uh, telegram that was sent, any letter could be read by us. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say us, by 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 the army, by the army, by the Americans, it was also important in the sense that um, at that time a lot of international phone calls were routed through Germany. Berlin was a major oh, oh. Uh, switch operation. So, wow. Wow. if the uh, French ambassador um, to Moscow uh, relayed information to Paris, guess uh, where the switch station <laughs> who was? Who was listening? Absolutely. <laughs> and so here you have another organization uh, come in to play. You know the Army Security Agency, which is the precursor of the NSA, which had all mm. signals intelligence operations in, um, uh, in 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 Germany. And you had a number of other organizations as well. Uh, so when you ask about the techniques, I would say it depends. But the point here is this was all source and intelligence. When we say intelligence, we often think espionage. Yes, that was part of it. But it was much bigger of that. And as a result of that, we had a very, very comprehensive idea of uh, what was going on in Germany at all levels with the Germans, but quite frankly, also with our allies. And where were these agents working? Was it just in West Germany, West Berlin, or was it in the... Uh, the Soviet zones as well. Yeah, good question. Um, so just in terms of organization, there were two headquarters. One was in Frankfurt, later Heidelberg, and the other one was in Berlin, uh, depending on what organization you um, uh, talk about. And Berlin, of course, becomes absolutely pivotal because it is a divided city. The Soviets in the east, the Western powers uh, had the uh, three sectors in the west. And the city itself is uh, um, inside the Soviet zone of occupation. Yeah. Now, initially, that doesn't seem to be a big deal because we were thinking of, you know, doing this jointly. But then as the Cold War really sets in, all of a sudden, West Berlin becomes strategically enormously important because mm-hmm. all you have to do is take uh, uh, the metro or S-Bahn, as it's called in Berlin, cross into the Soviet sector, and there you are. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, uh, East Berlin, of course, that's where you have all the Soviet headquarters. This is where you have the um, what later becomes the East German government. Mm-hmm. Uh it was also relatively easy at that point to travel across the um, the Soviet zone, uh, and of course we were very interested what uh, um, 
Like, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, how many troops uh, did the Soviets have there? And we discovered they had up to half a million there. And then you kind of wonder, oh, wow. you know, why do you need half a million soldiers um, for the occupation of a very small zone? Mm -hmm. uh, so these were all questions that uh, that we asked, and um, uh, uh, those were the tasks of uh, you know these various intelligence organizations. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. So did, so that, did that again? This information did it raise a red flag? Um, and and how did uh, U.S. government respond to this information? Yeah, great question. I think it's very important. One can re can get really get wrapped up in these operations because they are mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you have honey traps and you know these fascinating human stories. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, what you ask is exactly right. You know, what 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 was the upshot of all that? Did it make a difference? Um, and uh, I think it really did, uh, especially in terms of the uh, the Red Army. Um, uh, if you look at our estimates of Soviet troops in East Germany, and now, of course, after the end of the Cold War, we actually know what the Soviets really had. And if you look at the Army intelligence estimates and the real numbers, mm -hmm. you'll mm -hmm. find that we were very, very close mm. to the truth. If anything, interestingly, we, we underestimated the Soviets. The oh, Soviets wow. actually oh, wow. might have had a little more than we thought they did, so certainly it wasn't alarmist or anything like that. Uh, so the, um, the order of battle estimates that we produced were excellent, mm. absolutely mm. excellent. Uh, the question then becomes, well, what are Soviet intentions? And that's more challenging. We already talked a little bit about the Battle of the Bulge. Mm. And how do you assess someone like Joseph Stalin? You know, this was basically the Soviet Union was a one-man show. Um, not even Soviet officials in Germany might know what Stalin always wanted. But what I found fascinating is that throughout this period and continues, the army and army intelligence keeps telling uh, Washington two things. One thing is, if there was a war, the Soviets would be totally capable of overrunning Western Europe within six weeks. And if you look at the weakness of the Western forces, that seems reasonable. However, the army was also saying, and this was contrary to what a lot of alarmists in the United States were saying. You remember McCarthy was just coming up, mm -hmm. said, mm -hmm. no, the Soviets do not actively plan for war. It might be that there's an accident. You know, Stalin might, might play brinkmanship and that might trigger a war. Mm -hmm. But as far as they could tell... Um, the Soviets were not planning for World War III actively. And now, you know, we're still debating what Stalin's goal were today, and that kind of shows you how difficult it is. But that seems to have been a very, very accurate assessment. And to the extent that American policymakers were listening to that, I think they were valid, well advised. Really, at this time, you, you mentioned the importance of Berlin. It really, Berlin became very pivotal in the, the late 40s. Um, as we began the Cold War. And well, um, before I get into Berlin, the Cold War, that concept, when would you say that began? And can you just like define Cold War? Yes, I mean, Cold War, um, you know, obviously the obvious explanation is the opposition opposite of hot war. You know, yeah. it's not a real yeah. war. It's it's sort of a, um, a competition between two systems, mm -hmm. uh, economically, mm -hmm. culturally, ideologically with spies, um, but stopping short of, of war. So this kind of, Unfriendly rivalry that you have between these um, uh, uh, these two system systems. Uh, Berlin. Um, so so when did it start? You know, depends on who you ask. I would mm. say. I mean, mm. personally, I would say. You know, President Truman uh, delivered a speech in March 1947, in which he said, you know, the United States needs to help uh, free peoples who um, you know are, are are under threat by by armed minorities. He didn't mention the Soviet Union communists explicitly, but it was clear he was referring to them. So I think that was one one 
one major stepping stone towards the Cold War. The other one is, of course, the Berlin blockade uh, in um, 1948, 1949. Uh, what happened was that, you know, as I mentioned, Berlin was, West Berlin was essentially enclosed by the Soviet zone. Mm-hmm. And the Soviets decided to cut off land and sea access to Berlin for the Western powers. And the Western powers now have to, the Americans first and foremost have to decide, you know, A, what does this mean? Is this a prelude to war? And what are we going to do about it? You know, they what they do about it, they start this uh, airlift, uh, which um, provides, um, you know, the city with any, everything it needs for a year. And it was a logistical miracle, really. Um, but uh, more importantly, um, from an intelligence perspective, the idea is well, why is Stalin doing that and what does it mean? You know, of course, a lot of things, a lot of people were thinking at the time, in Berlin in particular, this is a prelude to war. Uh, and of course, the Soviets could have occupied Berlin you know, at the drop of a hat. I mean, there was nothing mm-hmm. that stood in their way. Um, but once again, if you look at the assessments of army intelligence, they're actually not alarmist. They're very reasonable. They say, you know, no, the Soviets, for, for one, they said the Soviets are not reinforcing their troops in the Soviet zone. They're moving them around uh, to, to deceive us and make us think that they are. That's their counter. Exactly. But uh, our assessment was that, no, you know, there's, there's no increase in, 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 in uh, no augmentation in troops. And we also don't see that they're, that they're planning a war. So this was actually a, a very balanced and restrained assessment and to the extent that we can now look into Sta- Stalin's thinking, um, you know, many years later, uh, that is true. I don't think he was really planning for war. He kind of wanted to see how far, either force the Americans right. out or right. get some concessions for us. But this was not a prelude to war. And again, um, that was communicated to the Pentagon and that did play a role in us not overreacting to what was Mm -hmm. going on in Berlin. And did that make us feel more comfortable about doing the Berlin airlift then? Um, I think so, yes, because, well, Stalin didn't think this airlift would work. Mm -hmm. Um, And quite frankly, initially, neither did we. Uh, think about, you know, providing two to three million people uh, from the air. I mean, it's, it's uh, even under today's circumstances, that's, that's uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a major feat. Stalin didn't think that was possible. Once it turned out the Air Force was able to do that, yes, that was reassuring uh, because we knew, well, as long as we can do that, we just have to keep doing it and uh, basically outlast Stalin. And this is exactly what happened in May 1949. You know, Stalin basically said, you know what, it's going to reopen up. You know. Technical right. difficulties right. solved. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. because the, um, um, just for, for some people listening who aren't sure, the Berlin Wall still does not exist. That doesn't come in until 1961. Uh, that's a very good reminder. Yes, the Berlin Wall did not exist. As I said, if you wanted to go from east to west Berlin, all you had to do is um, hop on an S-Bahn. There weren't even any controls. It was not really a divided city yet. Um, mm-hmm. So um, there was a free flow of uh, information, of spies, oh, also refugees. Know. I mean, if, if, yeah. if you didn't like it in East Germany, and many people didn't, you know, all you had to do was, was come to Berlin uh, you know, get to West Berlin, and uh, you know, then you were, um, um, then you were off the hook. All right, and then last question about spies. So we had a lot of army intelligence, and I'm assuming the our allied nations that were there had intelligence as well. Later on, some of these folks would go on to write books. So, this, what are some of the popular books about actual spies? Yeah, one of the um, the um, uh, things that's really fascinating about this period is, of course, it is also uh, uh, the um, 
the birth of the modern spy novel. Now, mm-hmm. spy mm-hmm. espionage, writing about espionage has been around for a long time, just like espionage itself. But um, the spy novel as we know it today was really born, I would say, in this time, 1940s, 1950s, especially in Berlin. Now, there were a number of authors um, who, um, they're mostly British authors, uh, who actually were intelligence officers during the war, the Cold War, and then turned to writing. Ian Fleming is, of course, the one that we know best. He was an intelligence officer in um, in World War II, and apparently he came up with all these crazy ideas, and his supervisors said, <laughs> no, this is not going to work. But then he became a writer, and, uh, you know, it worked very well there. For James uh, Bond. For James, for James Bond, Bond, exactly, James Bond, and probably for Ian Fleming commercially, it also worked very well. Um, uh, but there were others, you know, uh, the most famous, perhaps, is, is John le Carré. You know, mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. a British intelligence officer who served in Germany uh, in the early Cold War, and uh, that certainly inspired him, uh, um, um to write these books, and of course they're they're, they're fiction uh, books of fiction, but you actually mm-hmm. do learn mm-hmm. a lot about the time and intelligence. Graham Greene, another great British author, you know, who served in intelligence during the war and wrote a number of spy espionage uh, um, uh, related novels um, mm-hmm. that are inspired by by uh, what was really going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you take away from this is, you know, how you know fact and fiction sort of are intertwined, but also the central importance of of early Cold War Germany in Berlin in particular. I mean, I would say that the single mm-hmm. best novel, if one can say that, of, of espionage is The Spy Who Came In From The Coal, an absolute oh, right. classic oh, right. by John Le Carré, which is set in early 60s Berlin and really captures this sort of the grittiness and uh, the despair, uh, you know, that the city um, experienced um, as, as really the fulcrum and the focal point of the Cold War. Um, so it's kind of a two-way street um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, between between the real world of espionage and the fictional one. And, uh, and that's what I love about the book is it, it really, um, it, it, it explains, I think really well, you know, how, uh, army intelligence played a key role, um, but how some of these, these spies came into being and, 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 as a fan of the spy novels and the spy movies, it was really interesting to balance these and, and to learn the real story of it. So I, I loved it for that and the history of that era as well. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, I, I told you we had a lieutenant general, retired army lieutenant general, picked up the book, and uh, he contacted us. He could. He said he read it in one night. <laughs> he could not put That's it down. That's quite an accomplishment it. to read 500 <laughs> pages in one night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he called it brilliant. And um, I just think uh, yeah, it makes I, me yeah, very I, happy. I, I, yeah. Oh, I, absolutely. But it, it really is fascinating, and I didn't realize the. Um, how much of the role the U.S. Army actually played in this. Um, so I think uh, last main question for you is really um, why, you know, this is the beginning of the Cold War, this is 1944-1949. So why is it relevant to people today? Why should people read this book? I think for a number of reasons. As you said, you know, you were surprised by the role of the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember mm-hmm. that the... Um, uh, so a few things. Remember that the American national security apparatus, as we know today, was essentially set up by the National Security Act in 1947. So this is smack in the middle uh, of, of this time. That that act creates um, the Air Force. It creates the Department of Defense. It also creates uh, the CIA. Um, so, and of course, it takes a while for these organizations to, to come into being. So what then eventually emerges as the modern American intelligence community really was shaped by the army at the time. It was shaped operationally 
um, by Germany, if you look at the biographies of many pivotal intelligence officials later in the Cold War, they all learned their trade in Germany and Berlin. Wow. This really this really shaped them, you know, Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, Peter Sickle, uh, many, many famous names. So, um, and again, it was the army that created this 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 uh, um, apparatus. Another thing uh, uh, that that struck me is how, of course, we, we're looking at the creation of West Germany, mm-hmm. uh, and army intelligence was absolutely pivotal in 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 helping set up this this system. You know, hopefully make it democratic. Uh, one of the things I found is I wasn't aware of how many people, politicians, lawmakers who later became famous, well known. We're actually agents of of, of the <laughs> army. Tell I me, mean, the most the, the best known name is Willy Brandt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know mm-hmm. the the man who later became mayor of West Berlin and uh, chancellor of West Germany. We kind of know the, know him mostly as someone who tried to work with the East, but uh, he was a paid agent of the counterintelligence corps from 1948 to 1952 because he was an idealist, because he was anti-communist, and he mm-hmm. saw an alignment between um, uh, uh, our interests and and uh, uh, his. Uh, and there are many other examples. And then, uh, of course, um, you know, I already mentioned uh, Ukraine early on. Uh, uh, all of a sudden, some mm-hmm. of the things that I found in my research are very relevant. You know, us working with the Ukrainians uh, against the Soviets. Um, um, you know, later on, we, we we parachute Ukrainians from Germany. These are exiles into the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, of course, it's not exactly the same today. But there are all these ties um, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, seem dormant, but uh, all right, of a sudden right. seem very relevant again. And it really separates theory from reality. And it just shows you that you know these give great examples of reality. Uh, maybe taking theory and putting it into practice, but why understanding your past, why understanding what happened then is so applicable today. Yes, and of course, and that's what we hope to do with our books, not just mine, but all of ours. You know, we write about wars that are past, but uh, um, past is always prologue. And, uh, you know, very often you can pick any war you like. Uh, um, uh, The idea here is to learn from from our success and failures uh, and, and, and hopefully apply that in the future. As the saying goes, and I can't remember the name of the person who said it, but uh, when we ignore the past, we're condemned to repeat it. Yes, and unfortunately, uh, that has happened many, many times. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to end the, each each episode with my Hua trivia. So it's um, what what piece of trivia? What what is maybe the most fascinating thing you learned researching the book, or something that's really fascinating about this era? What's what's your piece of Hua trivia for this time? Yeah, I think, I think hands down, uh, unidentified flying objects. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I uh, uh, as you know, it was in the papers, you know, the Pentagon is currently, um, uh, is looking into this phenomenon, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. UFOs, and uh, also sort of from a historical perspective. And so I, I spoke to them and uh, I said, oh yeah, I have a contribution. Uh, so when the army um, came to Berlin, army intelligence came to Berlin, they, as I said, you know, they were involved in all aspects of German life. Uh, and all of a sudden, the, the head there, his name was uh, Colonel Harry Pretty, uh, uh, was tasked to investigate uh, uh, the phenomena of unidentified flying objects. Wow. <laughs> yeah. wow. Uh, which is, and of course, that fascinated mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I looked mm-hmm. into it. And, uh, well, in that case, it turned out, so the Germans in World War II 
had built a prototype of a um, uh, what is it called a wing uh, a one wing airplane you know oh, these are sort of oh, these fu- our, like our B2 bomber correct yeah. correct yeah, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. that look mm-hmm. very futuristic wow. and wow. apparently <laughs> uh, you know they did some test flights at the end of the war mm. and mm. Uh, 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 that's what triggered this this uh, um, uh, this notion of you know there are UFOs over Berlin of course our interest was then more uh well did they actually complete this are the soviets using it and what happened to the people who built it uh you know that was another interesting uh you know important task you know make sure that um scientists who have knowledge that could be applied more peace um um not fall into the wrong hands mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. uh werner from brown is a great example you know rocket rocket sure, scientist sure. who um, then came to the united states and built uh, the Apollo, which which you know brought the first man to the moon, but the UFOs that was that really struck me, and that was before uh, you know it was all in the press. But as you said earlier, you know the past repeats itself, and here it does so in a very curious way. That's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't, I, I'd never heard that. Well, that's it's all in the book. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, it is. And uh, um, yeah, just it's it's a great book. It's really it's fascinating history, but the relevance to today is is just important. Um, and before we close out, uh, this takes us through 1949. Can we look to maybe another book in the future that covers uh, more of the Cold yes, War? Yes, absolutely. A uh, great, great, uh, great lead up, uh, lead up, by the way. Um, <laughs> yes, no, uh, it, originally when I started this book, the idea was to take the story to 1961. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but but uh, as as I got into it, you know, I and, and uh, the center, you know, we decided, no, it's, there's just too much ground to cover. And the periods of the late 40s and 50s are really very different. So we decided to split this project. And this is volume one of what will be a two-volume history of army intelligence in Germany. The second volume, which I'm just actually completed the first chapter, uh, will then cover uh, the same uh, geographical area, but from 1949 to 1961, the uh, Mm. building of the Berlin Wall, uh, which is often, um, you know, defined as the end of the early Cold War. And I would agree with that. So... Well, thank you so much, Thomas, for your discussion and insights today about covert legions and army intelligence from 1944 to 1949. Uh, terrific book. Thank, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, um, great talking to you. You too. So now if anyone wants to get a copy of Covert Legions and learn more about the Cold War or army history in general, then I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. The book is available as a free PDF download. It can be ordered for free if you are part of the Department of Defense, or anyone can purchase it from the government publishing office. And all the links to that are online at our website. So be sure you check it out at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions about Army history as we cover topics from all eras of the U.S. Army, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, and tactics. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.